Greetings, Inklings, and welcome back to Prancing Pony. I mean, Catawampus Readings. The podcast where beginnings and introductions are slowly roasted so we can take the drippings and make delicious literary gravy. That may not have been the best metaphor. Moving on. Last week, we looked at the prologue of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring and concluded that the book qualified as a sequel rather than the beginning of a very long standalone novel. I think a large portion of the blame for that can be laid directly at the feet of a single reason, assuming reasons have feet. This book is not telling a story for the sake of a story. This book is telling a story as a means by which to explore a world. And just as the world is larger than this one story, so the book can't be qualified as a standalone anything. It both references and tells many tales, poems, songs, and legends from the parts of this world that we don't see in this volume. So as we have moved past the prologue and its many explanations and answers to questions that perhaps no one asked, we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter one, the long expected party. I would be tempted to say that because the prologue was more an academic preface and doesn't begin the story proper, that it can't be the true introduction. But on the other hand, it does serve one of the three purposes of an introduction admirably well, acquainting the reader with the world. As of yet, the two other elements of an introduction, revealing conflict and introducing characters, have not come into play, but as we've discussed in prior episodes, there are older works in which the introduction serves a single purpose only, rather than two of the three, or all three. And Fellowship is nearly 66 years old now, having been published in the years following the Second World War. We have already delved into older works here, stories that are 80 or 100 or even 200 years old, but I would risk a guess that even as Tolkien borrowed from older works as inspiration for his world and its characters, so he also hearkened back to that older style. Indeed, his first civilian job after World War I was studying and identifying the historical etymology of Germanic words, and later he was a professor at Oxford who specialized in Anglo-Saxon history and languages. The man has lived surrounded by the past and its influences. Is it any wonder that his writing reflects an older focus and style? So, accepting that the prologue qualifies as a beginning of sorts, to the tale if not to the story itself, what shall we think of this second introduction, provided in the form of the first chapter of the book? Buckle up, my friends. It's time to dig in. Chapter 1. A Long-Expected Party When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 111st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich, and very peculiar, and had been the wonder of the Shire for sixty years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigor to marvel at, Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr. Baggins. At 90, he was much the same as at 50. 
At 99, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess apparently perpetual youth as well as reputedly inexhaustible wealth. It will have to be paid for, they said. It ain't natural, and trouble will come of it. But so far, trouble had not come. And as Mr. Baggins was generous with his money, most people were willing to forgive him his oddities and his good fortune. He remained on visiting terms with his relatives, except, of course, the Sackville Bagginses, and he had many devoted admirers among the hobbits of poor and unimportant families. But he had no close friends, until some of his younger cousins began to grow up. The eldest of these, and Bilbo's favorite, was young Frodo Baggins. When Bilbo was 99, he adopted Frodo as his heir and brought him to live at Bag End, and the hopes of the Sackville Bagginses were finally dashed. Bilbo and Frodo happened to have the same birthday, September 22nd. You would better come live here with me, Frodo my lad, said Bilbo one day, and then we can celebrate our birthday parties comfortably together. At the time, Frodo was still in his tweens, as the hobbits called the irresponsible twenties between childhood and coming of age at 33. Twelve more years passed. Each year, the Bagginses had given a very lively combined birthday party at Bag End, but now it was understood that something quite exceptional was being planned for that autumn. Bilbo was going to be 111. One, one, one. A rather curious number and a very respectable age for a hobbit. The old Took himself had only reached 130. And Frodo was going to be 33. Three, three. A very important number. The date of his coming of age. Tongues began to wag in Hobbiton and Bywater, and rumor of the coming event traveled all over the Shire. The history and character of Mr. Bilbo Baggins became once again the chief topic of conversation, and the older folk suddenly found their reminiscences in welcome demand. No one had a more attentive audience than old Ham Gamgee, commonly known as the Gaffer. He held forth at the Ivy Bush, a small inn on the Bywater Road, and he spoke with some authority, for he had tended the garden at Bag End for forty years, and had helped old Holman in the same job before that. Now he was himself growing old and stiff in the joints, and the job was mainly carried on by his youngest son, Sam Gamgee. Both father and son were on very friendly terms with Bilbo and Frodo. They lived on the hill itself, in number three Bagshot Row, just below Bag End. A very nice, well-spoken gentle hobbit is Mr. Bilbo, as I've always said, the gaffer declared, with perfect truth, for Bilbo was always very polite to him, calling him Master Hamfast, and consulting him constantly upon the growing of vegetables, in the matter of roots, especially potatoes. The gaffer was recognized as the leading authority by all the neighborhood, including himself. But what about this Frodo that lives with him? asked old Noakes of Bywater. Baggins is his name, but he's more than half a brandy buck, they say. It beats me why any Baggins of Hobbiton would go looking for a wife away there in Buckland, where folks are so queer. And no wonder they are queer, put in Daddy Twofoot, the gaffer's next-door neighbor. If they live on the wrong side of the Brandywine River, right up against the old forest, that's a dark, bad place, if half the tales be true. You're right, Dad said the gaffer. 
Not that all the Brandy Bucks of Buckland live in the Old Forest, but they're a queer breed, seemingly. They fool about with boats on that big river, and that ain't natural. Small wonder trouble came of it, I say. But be that as it may, Mr. Frodo is as nice a young hobbit as you could wish to meet. Very much like Mr. Bilbo, and in more than looks. After all, his father was a Baggins. A decent, respectable hobbit was Mr. Drogo Baggins. There never was much to tell of him, till he was drowned. And on that ominous note, I'd like to take a brief look at the title. A lot of you probably remember from the first chapter of The Hobbit and the first section of its Peter Jackson film adaptation, the title, The Unexpected Party. It's a very slow start to a wonderful story that needs a couple updates, but which I would not change for the world. I'm looking at you, George Lucas. But the title of the chapter we just read is The Long Expected Party. This is clearly a reference to the former work, and it adds to the overall impression that Fellowship is a sequel and not meant to stand on its own. In addition, the character about which this section is most concerned, Mr. Bilbo Baggins, is the main character of the previous book. That said, there is nothing in this title or in this section that could not be understood without the prologue or without reading The Hobbit. That, I think, is the mark of a good introduction and a good sequel. When no outside material is needed to understand what the author is getting at, then the introduction has done its job well in providing the necessary information to the reader as it becomes necessary. Tolkien chose to spend the first several paragraphs in setting the scene, making sure the audience is well acquainted with the situation as it stands, so that the coming changes will be understood for the big deals they are supposed to be. Then, when the setting was well established, he moved on to an interaction between the Baggins' gardener, the gaffer, and some others in the local pub. This is the sort of action I look for in an introduction because my personal preference is for living, breathing characters, even if it comes at the expense of the vivid and lifelike setting. I could go into the no man is an island argument, and if characters truly feel alive, they must by nature imply the livability of their surroundings, but yeah, just a, that's a discussion for another time. I have opinions, okay? Don't judge. One more thing I'd like to point out about this introduction that I think was very cleverly done is that the third and final job of the introduction was, in fact, addressed rather early on, in the second paragraph, as it happens. You recall, of course, that the introduction has three jobs. First, to acquaint us with the world the story will happen in. Tolkien has done this so thoroughly that I feel like Hobbiton and Bagshot Row are childhood homes I remember with fading but persistent fondness. I don't know everyone that lives on the road, nor do I know the precise appearance of any of the homes thereon, but it feels like home, and that's an important factor in how Hobbiton is supposed to be perceived throughout the rest of the story. Second, the introduction should introduce us to the characters that live in this world. While the gaffer isn't our main character, he does live in the world being shown to us, and that makes him a legitimate subject to illuminate, and how he speaks of our main characters will frame how we think of them when, you know, eventually they are introduced to us in person. And thirdly, finally, 
the author should either imply or show the conflict that will be addressed and hopefully solved throughout the course of the story. Now you might be looking at me strangely and thinking, but the One Ring hasn't even been mentioned yet. How can the conflict already have been addressed? And you're right, it hasn't been addressed directly. And it won't be for many more pages, but let me draw your attention to this line here. At 99, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. It will be some time before we're informed that this extending of youth and vitality is one of the effects the ring can have, but the fact that it's here is important. This is something we can think back on later and say, aha, and feel clever for connecting the dots. That's something I think a lot of modern authors are letting go the way of the dinosaur, not out of malice, but simply out of forgetfulness and neglect. Audiences like to feel intelligent. The more breadcrumbs you leave, the more likely they will feel clever for making the connection between A and B, especially if none of the characters make a big deal out of that connection, but rather it's left to the reader to make and identify the connection for themselves. Now, I could have completely missed the mark on that one, but I suspect I'm right. I would love to hear back from you, especially if you disagree with me. That's all I have for you this week. The random question of the day is, if you traded places with your favorite pet for the day, what would you spend your day doing? Until next time, stay hydrated and well-fed, my Inklings. This has been your host, Inkfire, and you have been a wonderful audience. I'll see you on the other side.